Hopefully you've already been greeted a few times coming in, but uh, if not, let this be kind of an official greeting. Just want to say welcome to Wellhouse and welcome into this place at this time, and I think God is doing something special. Uh, a few weeks ago, we started uh, kind of publicizing that we were going to begin a series called Act Two, and it was more than just a series. It was going to be kind of looking behind the curtain and really kind of digging a few layers deep and see what all of this is about. And so uh, we're kind of on week two of that. But before I get to that, if you're you're newer around here, I want to invite you to something today. Uh, It's called Open House. And it really is another peek behind the curtain so that we can let you uh, uh, ask questions and just kind of get some information about how to find information and what's going on here, a little bit more about what we're about, what we value, those sorts of things. And so we want to invite you to that today. It is immediately after service. If you'll just go outside and say, I'm looking for open house, and then they'll take you up the hall. It's about 15 minutes, 20 minutes max, so we'll get you out in plenty of time for lunch. If you can't make today, we're going to be doing it again next week. And so back-to-back weeks there, but I I would personally love to invite you to open house. If you haven't been a part of that yet, uh, we would love to to do that for you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive into part two. Father, this morning, we just pray that your presence be on full display this morning. God, I feel a sense of restlessness this morning in myself and in the room, and so, Father, I pray that your, your spirit would, would just add a moment of peace and calmness. Father, we're going to talk about something today that is, is dear to you, that is, um, it was worth giving your son's life for. And so, Father, I pray that as we pull back the veil, as we, as we weed through some of the history, good and bad, of this thing called the church, that you would allow us to see what it was that you intended for it to be. Father, I pray that once we see and once our eyes are opened, if they're not already, to this beautiful creation, this beautiful movement, that God will jump in and begin to operate and begin to live out of what it is that you intended for it and for us. And so, Father, again, I just pray that you would use me this morning in whatever way that you choose to. Father, I pray that if anything comes from me or out of my mouth this morning that's not of you, that it would fall on the ground and we'll walk on it as we leave this morning. But God, the things that are from you, the truths that come from you, God, I pray that they would take root deep in our heart this morning, begin to change us, transform us, transition us from death to life, from darkness to to light, from just a place we come to a people we are. We pray this through your son's name. Amen. I'm going to ask a really simple question, and I know it doesn't have a really simple answer, because if we were to go around this morning, everybody's going to answer slightly different. There'd be some similar, so we could probably create some categories, and then there's some people that probably wouldn't have any sort of answer. But it's this, the question is, what do you think of when you think of church? Or better yet, maybe the better question is this, is what do you feel when you think of church? 
You know, for some of you, you've grown up in church and you have a a picture of the way church was and maybe it was grandma's church and you kind of locked into that or maybe it was a church that you went to to Sunday school and Sunday morning and then Sunday night and Wednesday night. That was my view of church growing up was a place that you come and you come way too much. You know, it was like, man, do we have to go to church again? We were just there two days ago and here we got to come again and and then like two more days you're there again and you're like there on a Thursday night and then it, it was just, it was a constant in my life, and I thank God for that. For some of you, it carries a little bit more weight, a little more pain, a little bit more burden. You've seen the bad side of it, or your mother, your father, your grandmother, a neighbor, a coworker has seen some of the more negative side of that, and so with you, it, it brings a little bit more of a feeling of pain and discomfort, or maybe for you, it brings about this, this feeling of anxiety, or maybe for you, it's a feeling of skepticism, and maybe you're in a moment of life right now where you go, listen, I, I need something, so I'm going to give it another chance. I'm going to kind of lean back in and take a little bit of a step toward it, but I don't trust it. There's no secret that church in our culture right now is is really under the microscope, but it's not the first time. But whatever it is that we think, whatever it is that we feel, it's probably a far cry from what the first century Christians, the first century followers of Jesus, as they were birthing this movement, what they would have thought. Because a lot of what we think or a lot of what we feel, they would have had no context for now get this, we'll start from really the foundation. This wasn't around, so there was no, no Bibles. There was no building. There, 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 were, there were no screens, there were no chairs, there were no swag, there was no staff. It was something more than that. And it was something, while all of those things there's nothing intrinsically wrong with, it was, it was something that was birthed not out of a place that someone was driving through Jerusalem and went, There's a new place in town. Let's go check it out. They would have had no context for that. And so a lot of what we think and probably a lot of what we feel, they could not have thought. It wouldn't have made sense. Because the church didn't begin as a place. It began as a movement. And here's the thing about this movement. And I want to to draw us into this for just a second, then we're going to open this up. We're really going to dissect this today. That the church was a movement designed by God to withstand and has withstood the most tense of times. Now follow with me for a second. It was birthed in the midst of a polarized culture. It was birthed in the midst of a very diverse culture, both diverse in race, ethnicity, thought, philosophy, theology, all of these things, worldview, it was very, very, very diverse. It it, it was, if you look back at the first century when this thing was birthed, it was a, a, a culture, a society that was filled with elitism, People that had, for whatever reason, elevated themselves. Maybe it was financial wealth. Maybe it was enlightenment or education. Whatever it was, maybe they were just born into, but it was a culture that was, there was no shortage of elite type of thinking. It was a culture that was completely segregated. There was a class system that was very distinct, and you didn't cross over those 
Even in common, everyday things. You didn't eat with people. You didn't shop with people. You didn't dine with people. Because of these levels of segregation, it was filled with hate. It was filled with both political and religious oppression. It was filled with both political and religious corruption. Not that we can imagine anything like that, can we? And the reason I set it up like that is because of this. We have been convinced that the church has no place and is not enough in this culture. And I'm telling you, this culture doesn't hold a light to the Roman culture, to the culture that God said, now is the perfect time and the perfect place to birth my movement. And here's the beauty of what happened. God launches a community, a movement in the midst of this, this hate-filled, elite, segregated, corrupt culture that doesn't only survive the culture, it thrives in the culture. It turns their world, their culture, upside down. Because you realize that the church without what we're going to talk about this morning, should have never survived the first, second, at most, third century. And every effort, historically, there was in those first three centuries to squash this thing, it got better. It got bigger. It got more powerful. It began to even shape cultures even more. The the more pressure put on it, the more it, it shone. And I believe that it's still the same church, while it looks slightly different, I think it can have the same lasting impact on this culture, even in the midst of its negativity, in the midst of its diversity, in the midst of the corruption, in the midst of the segregation of thought and race and political agenda, and everything else that we could talk about this morning, I believe it still has and possesses the same power. And here's why. Because it was launched around an event like no one had ever seen or witnessed. And it was that event that gave it its punch. It was that event that exemplified the power that would be needed to sustain a movement. And here we are, 2,000, 2,100 years later, still talking about the movement. So this event is what would cause it not only to survive the Roman Empire, but still, again, existing where we are now. And it was the witnessing to that event that testified to who Jesus really was, and that was that he was who he said he was. That he wasn't a crazy man, but he was truly the son of God. And so here's what we're going to do today. For you history buffs, you're going to love this. For the rest of you, you're just going to have to tolerate it, but I believe God's going to do something in the midst of it. We're going to go back a little ways, and we're going to kind of unpeel 
We're going to peel back the screens and the chairs and all this stuff that we maybe associate with it when I first ask you the question. And hopefully what happens in this is that this will bridge some gaps for those of you who are newer to church, but I also pray for those of you who have been around a minute, it will loosen the grips of what God and Jesus was really intending for this thing to be. And so this morning, what I hope to do in just a few minutes, I want to redefine church. I want to rethink church. I, I, I want to relook at what it's all about. Last week we talked about why. Why do we do what we do? This week we're going to talk about what. What is it that God birthed? What is it that God was trying to move? And the first thing you need to know about this, it's very simple, is this. It was launched as a movement and it's still moving because movements move. For, for, for good or bad, this movement has continued to move for the last 2,000 years. Because movements do that. Places, they pop up and they shut down. Ideologies shift and change. But movements move. And it starts with the Greek word. I don't do this very often. But the Greek word that is used for church is this. It's ekklesia. And if you begin to look back and go all the way back to the Greek meaning of this, here's what was really meant by this. Ekklesia means a gathering. Ekklesia means a congregation. Ecclesia means an assembly. Ecclesia means, at its very root, its very core, it means a movement. Now, this is what Jesus had in mind when he launched this. And we're going to see this in just a second in Matthew 16. But when Jesus talks about the church in Matthew 16, when Acts rolls around and we see the birth of a church, it was a gathering that was birthed. It was a movement that was birthed. It was, it was a congregation, an assembly that was birthed. Then something happened. What happened is it transitioned. It transitioned from being this ideal of a movement to being a location. See, for you, when I asked a minute ago, what do you think of when you think of church? You probably thought a place we go. It's something we do on Sunday. But that was never the intended purpose. It moved from a gathering to an establishment, something that was was organized in such a way that, that it's, it's something I visit, it's something I do, it's, it's something that I put into my schedule. It went from being a simple message of hope found in an event called the resurrection to something that is so complex that I'm not even for sure if we really know what it means anymore. And so let's just stop and talk about this. If you know anything about church history, you know that as this thing has moved, The establishment, the complexity of it, has caused really some downright embarrassing moments. It's caused some pain. It's caused some hurt. There's been tough moments, moments where there's been a lot of time and resource and money wasted. There have been moments where the sight and the goal and the agenda has not centered on the right things. And so it begs the question, how did we get there? How did we get here? How did we get to this place where when we say, what does the church mean to you, that we all don't have a very similar answer, but yet we have these very different answers that are filled with a vast difference of of opinion and feeling, emotion. And so here's how it happened. In part, it was because of the mistranslation of that little word, ecclesia. If you go back historically, Here's the timeline that begins to happen. Ecclesia was translated into German, the word Kirch. Sounds real familiar, right? K-I-R-C-H-E, Kirch. So we translate it from Ecclesia 
to the German word Kirch. Then from that, we move it to English, that is church. And what comes from this German word in, in around 300 AD from the Goths is this. It went from this meaning of gathering to Kirch, which means the Lord's house. You see that slight transition? So it went from focusing on a gathering, an assembly, a movement, to the Lord's house, signifying, oh, that's a place I go. It's a place I go to visit God. It's a place I go to interact with God. So this bad translation leads to some really bad theology, and here's how. The church began to be viewed as a place rather than a movement, and in so it was tamed, it was localized, it was controlled, and here's even worse, it became owned. And here's how it became owned. Whoever owned the building owned the scripture. Whoever controlled the building, the Lord's house, controlled the scripture, and whoever controlled the scripture controlled the people. Just do some, you don't even have to pick up a theology book, just pick up a, a history book and you'll see that whoever controlled the building controlled the scripture and whoever controlled the scripture controlled the people. So what began as a movement, distributing this good news of Jesus, this, this message of resurrection that gives hope, and mercy, and second chance, and life, and light that began to carry with it salvation suddenly becomes the Lord's house, and in doing so, it becomes this place that becomes a very insider. You're in, or you're out. And because I control the scripture, I can control you, so I get to determine who's in and who's out. And in doing so, it becomes very ritualistic. It becomes corrupt, misplaced authority and power. And then as history would have it, something happened. You fast forward to the 16th century, there's a guy named William Tyndall comes along and he decides that, you know what, it's time for the average person to have access to the Scripture. This is not, <laughs> this is not well met by the church. It creates a rumble, it's scandalous, because here's what it's going to do. If everyone suddenly now has access to the Scripture, what we do in that is we give away the power of the church. We give away its control. We give away, because now all of a sudden people can read these things for themselves. They can begin to discover the very nature of God. They can begin to discover who Jesus was and what he really taught and what he really meant when he navigated through these really tough, intense moments in culture. All of a sudden, they can begin to see for themselves the very heart and intention of God when he began the church. And so he goes and he begins to start talking this up. It gets so, so tense. At one moment, he looks at a group of bishops, and William Tyndall says, if I live long enough, if the Lord grants me long enough, he says, I will ensure that the plowboy, the young man in the field who you control currently, he says, I will ensure that the plowboy knows more Scripture than you. And it sets a fire. So in 1524, he fled from England to Germany, and he begins to work on a translation. 
And the very first version of the New Testament was published by Gutenberg. And then he smuggles it back into England. And this is beginning to catch fire again. People are seeing God in new ways. They're experiencing for themselves the real heart and intention of what Jesus was all about. They're experiencing for themselves what church, church, ecclesia, is really all about. And then he had a good friend who ended up not really being a good friend, betrays him. And he was burned at the stake in 1536, only 12 years after he translates the New Testament for all to have. But see, what went out, what was started, couldn't be reeled back in. By this point, Bibles, Scripture, had begun to trickle out. And one of the things that drove the church leaders crazy, and you can look at this in secular history, one of the things that drove church leaders crazy was that William Tyndall translated the word ecclesia, congregation. He translated it congregation rather than church. And what he did in that slight turn, he moved the focus from the establishment. He moved the focus from a building back to the people. Now, let's look back at Jesus' take. The first time that the word church or ecclesia is mentioned in the New Testament is in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is kind of winding down. He's getting ready for what is going to be the, the ultimate act of sacrifice, but also what is going to be needed in order to give this church its authority, its power, its voice. The resurrection's coming, the death, burial, and the resurrection. All those things are about to happen, and he has called his disciples in for kind of a, 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 a preliminary meeting of, hey, guys, things are about to really get tense. And in Matthew 16, he has a conversation with his disciples, and he simply asks, he says, who do people think that I am? Who do people, you guys are out there among the people, who, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, well, some say that you're the reincarnation of John the Baptist. John had been beheaded at this point, who's a good friend and, and, and a good, uh, he was blazing a trail for this movement to come. And some say, well, you know, some think that Jesus, you're, you're Elijah, you're a prophet. And Jesus looks and he says, well, who do you? You've spent the most time with me. You've seen me up close and personal. You've seen me navigate the tense, diverse culture. Who do you say that I am? And look how Jesus responds. Peter answers, well, you are the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Peter says, we believe that you're the sent one. We believe that you are the one who is going to restore, to redeem God's purpose and plan for us. And Jesus replied, he says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. He said, this is, you didn't get this from watch, just watching me physically. He said, no, God has spiritually been working in you to open your eyes so that you can see, because this is really important, Peter. And then he goes on to say, and I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock, well, what rock? The rock of the testimony that, G, that Peter has just said. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell, the Hades, will not overcome it. Here's, here's what he says. On this rock, this confession 
of who I am, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God. He says, on that confession, Peter, I will build my ecclesia. Peter, upon the proclamation of who I am and who, by the way, I will display myself as through the cross, the burial, and the resurrection. He says, through this, remember this moment, Peter. Remember when you see what you're about to see in the coming days. He says, remember this because upon that proclamation, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia, not my building, not my establishment, but my movement. And so we fast forward a little more. Two months after the resurrection, his gathering is launched. Now, we picked up in Acts chapter 1 last week, and here's the scene in Acts chapter 1. Jesus has risen from the grave, has come back, spent about 40 days with his followers, and he's telling them and, and again, prepping them. So get this, you've got a dead man who has now risen, who is alive, who's now eating dinner with you, who's interacting with you. I'm sure they're tuned in. But he says, hey, don't go public with this until the Holy Spirit comes because you're going to need something that's more powerful than just your recollection of my teaching. He says, you're going to need something more powerful because this is going to get harder in some ways, not easier in some ways. There's going to be, uh, you're going to transform, you're going to change the world. You're going to need something and the, the Spirit is coming. Verse 6, they still haven't figured it out. They think that, you know what, it's still going to be this earthly kingdom oh, is this now the time that the kingdom of Israel is going to be restored? And he says, no, 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 no. It's not about the physical. It's not about you. It's not about the power that you think. Because then he goes on, he says, there's going to be a power come. And now this is the, the moment where the disciples go, now that's a word I can get on board with. I've been needing, I, I want some power. Because again, the negativity that they had seen the power executed, because again, why? Whoever controlled the building, whoever had the power of the buildings, had the power of the Scripture. And I'm not even talking about the New Testament. Just look at history. Look at the way that religious corruption and power and misplaced authority was being used. And they thought if we can snatch the physical power, then we will somehow do better than the ones before us. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let's, let me make it clear. You're going to receive power not to reign, not to rule, he says. But in verse 7, he says, you're going to receive power from the Spirit to be my witnesses. That the only reason at this moment that God has seen fit to, receive, to, to gift you the promise of the Spirit is this, so that you can be my witnesses so that you can proclaim me, so that you can testify of me, so that you can make followers of me, so that you can teach about me, so that you can baptize in my name, so that you can create disciples that represent me. And this must have been the moment where they said, Jesus, are you kidding me? First of all, nobody's going to listen to us. And he says, how we, you know, they're probably thinking, how are we even going to get into these places that you're talking about? You're talking about going all over the world. I mean, we don't have that sort of, of, of capacity. We don't have that sort of bandwidth. This is a really tall order, Jesus. I don't know, look around. There, you know, there ain't 5,000 sitting out on the hillside anymore. There's just a room full of us. <laughs> there had to come a moment when a dead man is speaking. You go, I'm going to listen in. 
And so Jesus says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to return to Jerusalem, and I want you to wait. And while you're there, just spend some time in prayer, and let's see what happens. And so then the day of Pentecost comes, which is just this big celebration. It rolls around. The city is full of Jews and Jewish converts from around the world. And Peter stands up and he begins to speak. And it's not just ordinary language. He begins to speak in such a way that everyone understands it. Luke lists 14. So there's at least 14 different language groups that are in this crowd. And Peter opens his mouth and every language begins to understand Peter. See, the stir that was beginning to happen in Acts chapter 2 wasn't because he was speaking in a language. It was because he was speaking in everyone's language. In fact, they looked and said, this guy must be drunk, except I can understand him. Can you understand him? I don't speak your language. You don't speak my language. How are we both understanding this? And they begin to figure out there's, there's something more than just a case of wine that has been cracked open. And so they lean in. And what they figure out is that this stir is something way more powerful than anything they had ever seen or any witnessed. It wasn't just a Jew-only message. See, at that point, there was this massive movement of Jewish culture, Jewish authority. And suddenly, for the first time, somebody says, whoa, this isn't just a Jewish message. Jesus is for everyone. We don't even speak the same language. We're not from the same place. We don't value the same things. We don't have the same culture. And he's telling us that Jesus is for everyone. Hold up. So everyone now gets to belong to the ecclesia? I mean, in the system I know, you've got to be a part of that particular religion to enter into the house of the Lord. Now you're telling me just everyone? And so Peter, a friend of Jesus, stands up and he begins to preach. And I just want to highlight a few things in this. And so here's where he starts in verse 22. He says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. He says, let me give you a walk down memory lane. He says, God sent Jesus... And he backed his play by all these things that you've seen. You guys remember, right? In fact, you, 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 the cluster back there, you guys were there when he took those little baskets of fish and chips and turned it in and everybody. You, you guys remember that? You guys remember him healing the blind man? You know all these things you saw? These things were given to him by God so that you would know who he is, so that you would understand, you would begin to believe and have faith that he is who he says he is. You remember this, right? He says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan. <laughs> you think you killed him, but God says, no, that's what I wanted you to do. Because it was in killing him that I was able to do something bigger. You think you squashed a movement. No, all you did was set a fire. This was all part of God's plan, he says, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on the cross. But God... I've told you for some time, if you've been around here, man, I love God's butts. Because anytime there's a but God, there's something big about to happen. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So all Peter does, he starts out by saying, let's, let's just take a little stroll down memory lane. You guys remember this, right? And they're all going, yeah, we remember this. And I've already begun to hear, hear rumbles that, he was back. I knew they couldn't find, you know, his body in the tomb. And then I hear he was across town. In fact, I saw him. 
And so the word begins to trickle out that Jesus had overcome the grave. Then you begin to shift, look down at verse 33. He says that that God has raised this Jesus, he says, verse 32, to life. And we are all witnesses of it. You have witnessed an event that will change the world. And he has been exalted to the right hand of God, and he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and has poured out on what you now see and hear. And he's going to jog them all the way back to David, who they would have all known as king. See, again, they were waiting on this kingship like David had when David ruled the world. That's what they were waiting on. They said, well, let's just talk about David. So he jogs them down memory lane. He says, you know, David, right, he died, and we can still go visit his tomb. So we're not going to put faith. David didn't have the authority that I'm about to display. See, it's only through the authority of that risen tomb, that empty tomb. So he walks them through David, and then he gets personal, verse 36. He says, therefore, let Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus. If you have any doubt, he says, just look at the resurrection. Look at the resurrection. Whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And this is the moment where there's a shift in the crowd. And light bulbs begin to go on. We thought the movement was over. We didn't even think the movement had begun. But now all of a sudden we're beginning to connect what God is doing. We're beginning to connect that that resurrection is not just something insignificant, something to be recorded in history and moved on. No, this resurrection comes with power. This resurrection comes with authority. And so they ask, it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Here's the shift. It begins to move from just a thought or ideology to feeling and passion. All of a sudden they begin to go, oh, now we're, we're feeling this. It's not just thought. It's, it's something deeper than that, something more. And they said, what shall we do? Okay, Peter, we hear you. We get it. We see the authority. We see the power. We see the plan of God. What do we need to do? And Peter replied, Attend church regularly and make sure you dress correctly. (laughs) Would have made no sense. Now he says, repent. Be baptized. He says, give this Lord who has exemplified even power over death. Give him your life. Give him your heart. Give him your desires. Give him your habits. Change your trajectory. Change your life. Claim him as Lord. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus, he says, put your faith, put your hope, put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness. By the way, there's a second chance to be found in this of your sins. And then there's a promise, he says, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, when you get that gift, I'm going to remind you of what Jesus told the people in the room. He said, now I'm going to tell you all. He says, and this promise is for you and your children and for all of those who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. He says, it's for everyone, even those who are far off. He's not just talking geographically. He's talking chronologically. That's you and I. And then it says in verse 41, and those who accepted this message, who put faith in this Jesus, powered by the resurrection, 
were baptized, and about 3,000 of them were added to their number. And the movement, the ecclesia, just as Jesus had predicted in Matthew 16, launched. And just like Jesus said in Matthew 16, it wouldn't be hinged on what I'm teaching you, but instead of who I am. And he says, there is a movement coming, Peter, and upon the rock of your proclamation that I am who I say I am and that I am who I'm about to show you that I am through the resurrection, he says, there's something coming and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it is 2019, and guess what's still here? There's never been another movement like it. Jesus says that when I give this thing its ultimate power through the resurrection, it will survive the ages. So here's where I want to end today. What does all this mean for us? So this is the part where you can kind of shift and tune back in if you're like, listen, I can read history on my own. What's this mean for us? It means that you, you, you couldn't go to church. You were the church. See, the church then wasn't for unchurched people or for churched people. There wasn't any. The church wasn't about location. There wasn't one. It, it means that the church didn't have to completely, and hear me out on this, it didn't mean that the church had to completely defend Every single word of this, it wasn't around. See, again, I think sometimes we think that in order for us to really be effective in, in, in culture, we've got to be able to defend every critic's version of this. I'll tell you, you know, I had a neighbor a while back. She was asking me about some things, and I just answered it with this. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have all the understanding, and I can't tell you about every single thing. I don't know if, if, if Jonah really spent time in the belt. I don't know. And I'm not really sure it even matters. But I tell you what I do know, that a dead man came to life. See, again, I think we've got it all twisted that says that, you know, in order for us to really win back over culture, we got to be able to, you know, defend that. No. It wouldn't have made sense to them to do that. They didn't change the world by some vast knowledge of every single little thing. The church wasn't about looking the part. It wasn't for the elite. It was all-encompassing. The church wasn't about a style. It wasn't about traditions. It wasn't about rituals. There weren't any. So here's what it means. Last week I gave you the big why. Here's the big what. We're not waiting on a movement from God. We are the movement of God. So what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be moving as God moves. And the mission is simple. We talked about it last week. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen. The mission is this. We create followers of Christ. That we move people into a life fully devoted to Jesus. And when we don't have the answers, we say, I don't know. 
when we don't have everything figured out and our lives aren't perfect and we make mistakes and people say, well, that's right, the church is just full of hypocrites and say, well, if you come to our church a minute, we just tell you that right out of the gate. We don't have it all together. We don't always act right. We don't always make the right calls. We don't always make the best decisions, but we're trying to move. We're trying to move as God moves. We're trying to move and open ourselves up to what God is doing in our community, and we're sorry that the church for you has been a negative experience. We're sorry that the church has brought about a meaning that it was never intended to mean. Can I tell you about the true meaning of the church? The church is just a movement of God. It's an assembly of imperfect people who, you know what, don't have it all together, but we're trying. We're trying to live out. We're trying to leave this place better than we found it. We're trying to move into our communities and change it to positive. We're trying to move into dark spaces and leave it light. We're trying to move. And I don't believe we can ever let go of that. That's the call. That's the mission. That's why we do what we do. And that's where we have to stay focused. Can we agree to something? Can we vow that we never allow it to become just a building? Can we vow that we'll never let it just become a time on Sunday morning or a place that we come and a certain way of doing it? I want to be a people who are led and who are leading. I want to be a, a, a people that as we converse, as we give, as we serve, as we invite, as we cheer like crazy when people are giving their life to, to Jesus. So I want us to be about moving into those spaces, intimate, public, wherever they are, into those spaces with Jesus in mind. And it doesn't matter whether we meet here or whether we're meeting in a home or whether we're meeting in a coffee shop or a prison. It doesn't matter that we, we begin to understand and we recapture this concept that church is not something I do. It's not somewhere I go. It's something I belong to. It's my identity. It's, it's me. It's us. And as I live out the values of Jesus... And it doesn't matter, again, at my workplace or at my home or at my school or my frat house. As I am living out the values of Jesus, I'm representing the church. I'm taking people to church. I'm exposing people to church. I'm showing them the church. And when we give, when we meet together, when we move about, we want to do it in a way that we live out and we proclaim what Jesus said his church was going to be built on, and that is that Jesus is Lord. Stand with me as we end. I, I don't know what comes to mind or what you feel or what it was that you felt at the beginning of this when you hear the word church, but I want you to know something. I love church. I love church. And as your pastor, I want you to know that I would die for church. I would. I love this quirky, dysfunctional, don't have it all together, ecclesia. But I believe in the church. I want you guys to let this sink in. There's no plan B. God's intention was to change the world powered by the resurrection of Jesus through the church. I want you to feel the weight of that for a second. We have a, we have a responsibility to make sure that we are constantly checking and evaluating and working toward being the church that Jesus, when he spoke to Peter, had in mind. And 
when he met in that upper room in Acts chapter 1 with his disciples, he had it in mind. And when it launched, it began to display itself and it began to change a culture much like ours. So what I hope is that when we, when we say church, it begins to take shape and it begins to mean this. That it's a multiplying. Meaning that again, I'm, I, I'm, I, I've got a responsibility to invite people to come along. Much like Peter said, hey, it's for everyone. Yeah, but I don't know this very well. And you can say, you know what, I don't either. I, I, I'm spending time in it. I value it. But I don't, I don't know everything, but that's not a prerequisite here. Yeah, but I, I've got some stuff in my closet and some stuff I'm dealing with and some stuff that's not PC and some stuff that is hot button. And we say, that, that, that's okay. You can still be a part of this. But it becomes a, a multiplying, multicultural gathering of people who believe Jesus is the resurrected Son of God. I said a Cracker Barrel a while back and talked with a guy who said, well, what about? I said, I don't know. I said, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? And he said, yeah. And I said, so do I. I said, so let's just let that be enough for the moment. Let's let that keep us in touch and contact and working together. But I want it to, to become something that you dearly love. Do you know that Jesus calls this, this gathering, this ecclesia? He calls it his bride. I feel like that for some of us, if we spoke about our bride, our spouse, the way we talk about the church, we'd have a couch to sleep on. But can we, can we begin to interact with it in a way that says, listen, it's not perfect. I get it, but I still love it. And I'm trying my best to be the best part of it that I can be. The church began as a movement, and I pray that it continues to move. And I pray as we move, we're leaving something beautiful behind, something for the next generation. God's grace, we get to be a part of this movement. And it's anchored around these tables. And so this morning, we're going to end with communion and just spending some time celebrating God's foreknowledge, His plan, His scheme to redeem us through Jesus. But there's not just redemption and salvation. There's power found at these tables because they don't just represent the death of Jesus. They represent the resurrection of Jesus. And it's that resurrection that birthed a movement that is still moving. So as you move to the tables today, begin to question, what is it do I think of this movement? What is my role in this movement? And how will I move it into my life this week?